Thank you, Lisa. I know that Lil's going to walk right up to Lyle Kitterman and say, you know, you ain't the only 100-year-old person at this church. There's another centenarian uh, walking around, and her name's Lil, and um, we're looking forward to celebrating her. She's quite a character. Uh, we went uh, about a month ago, Jean, neighbor, and some of the ladies who helped take care of uh, Lil, and we filmed a video at her house, asked her a bunch of questions, and then whittled down some of the answers, and you're going to see a video next week. Also, another message in this series that we're starting today called The God Questions. So I'm excited to get this series kicked off. You've seen the signs outside and the invite cards, uh, trying to get people who have questions about God, about the Christian faith, maybe a question that they think the church isn't really addressing or answering, and that unanswered question may be the barrier that is keeping them from coming to church. So we want to take on those questions and say the, the Christian faith isn't scared to talk about difficult issues, such as the, some of the questions we're going to talk about in the weeks to come. Now, next week, Luke Sanders is, is here today. Luke, you want to raise your hand? Oh, bearded one. He is um, going to be speaking next week about basically a topic called, Why Did an Innocent Man Have to Die? Why did this man have to die? We're talking about the atonement and all this stuff. But that, uh, that is one of the objections because what I, I remember a, a, a person came from a Jewish background. And he says, I just don't understand. Muslims have a hard time with this too. How can you Christians say that one person can die or pay for the sins of another person? I just don't get that. You know, isn't everybody responsible for your own life, your own actions? Are you not morally accountable for yourself? And so that's going to be addressed next week. Now, I want to get to the, to the question of the day for today because this, uh, this came up in a leadership track that we were doing over the summer in August and then early September. We were talking about this book by Andy Stanley came out. The book was called Irresistible. And in this book, one of the number one barriers to the Christian faith, at least in the digital age in the last 15 years, and with the advent of these new atheists that have come about, uh, guys like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and others, this is, this is one of the number one questions that has been a barrier to people coming uh, forward to embrace Christ and the Christian faith. And basically the question is this, why does the God of the Old Testament seem so different from Jesus and the God of the New Testament, or the teachings that Jesus has about God seem so different from this God, Yahweh, that's in the Hebrew Scriptures. You say God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How can that be so when these two, quote, gods that you describe seem so different? So I want to address that today. I want to talk about the new atheists and the digital age and the, the objections that they have to the Christian faith, and I want to get into it, but we need God's help. So I invite you to bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of prayer that you say, come to me um, and you will be shown great and mighty things. We, so Lord, we call on you in prayer today. We ask that you would give us wisdom because we know that James tells us that and if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask of God who gives generously and to all without finding fault. So, Lord, we do ask you for the wisdom that can only come from you. Lord, Jesus, you said uh, in John's gospel that you were going to give us the Holy Spirit as followers of you. And when we got the Holy Spirit, that he will guide us into all truth. So, Lord, we ask that you'd reveal that truth to us today. Help us to navigate these waters, these murky questions where it doesn't seem like the answers are very clear. Help us to come out the other side and realize that you have answers to every single question in life. And you are the way and the truth and the life. And I pray that you'll show that to everybody today. Lord, help us to have our minds and our hearts open to your activity in each of our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here's this fundamental question to reconcile this picture of the God in the Hebrew Scriptures with what the New Testament reveals about God. In fact, as you read uh, some of the Old Testament passages, you read about these violent uh, excerpts from the Jewish Scriptures uh, where God commands 
the Israelites to go in there and take over the promised land. And as they take over and drive out the inhabitants of the land, they are to kill. They are to annihilate uh, people in there that are part of the Canaanite tribes that oppose the, Isra the Israelites from coming into, quote, their promised land. There was a church father in the second century who was reading about these passages in the Hebrew scriptures and then what he knew about Jesus in the Christian scriptures. And his name was Mars Martian. I, I, I'd call him my favorite Martian as a joke. But his name is Marcion of Sinope. And that is a small town in the uh, region of Pontus, if that clears it up. Is everybody clear on where that is? No? Okay, it's in Bithynia, and it's on the south shore of the Black Sea in modern-day Turkey. That's where this guy was from. So he's, he, you could call him a Turk, or I'd just say he's a Turkey because of his theology. But anyway, Marcion, he came out with this theology about reading some of the violent passages in the Old Testament and knowing the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, you know what? That Yahweh in the Hebrew scriptures, that cannot be the same God that I read about who Jesus calls his father. So Marcion uh, was a follower of the Gnostic religion. And um, he ended up separating this God Yahweh of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament. And Marcion said, well, I'm going to make up my own canon of Scripture, and I'm going to make up my own list of acceptable books that I think are inspired by God. So he threw out all the Old Testament. He only kept parts of the Gospel of Luke. And then Marcion uh, only kept 10 letters from the Apostle Paul. He didn't think anybody else was a real apostle of Christ except Paul, and Luke's gospel was okay. So parts of Luke's gospel anyway. So he's, uh, he's one of those cafeteria Christ followers that, you know, I'll pick and choose whatever I want, throw out what I don't want. Well, guess what, folks? We don't have the right to do that. We have to take the whole council of Scripture and figure out how it all fits together. So there was one of the first heretics who said, I just don't see how this Yahweh in the Old Testament can be the same God, Jesus says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as the God that Jesus describes in the New Testament. Now, back to Andy Stanley's book, Irresistible, because Andy writes at the end of the book, and it's a great chapter, he writes of this imaginary debate between four people. The, the people on the atheist side are the new atheists. Uh, one of them is uh, Dr. Richard Dawkins. He's uh, English from the United Kingdom, and he wrote a book in 2006 called The God Delusion. And there's another American new atheist. His name is Sam Harris. So you have Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris on the unbelieving side, and then he said, let's just imagine a debate where the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul are on the other side. And if you're thinking, like, have I heard this before? This sounds vaguely familiar. Uh, if you go back to the Easter sermon of 2019 in this church, you will hear that debate because that's what I, I grabbed it right out of the book So uh, to, to make an illustration of it. So what would uh, Dr. Dawkins and Sam Harris say about this God of the Old Testament? Now, this comes right out of a, a paragraph in The God Delusion. And so Richard Dawkins speaking here, he says... The God of the Old Testament, he sounds very educated in English, uh, and I'm an Anglophile except when it comes to him, uh, but anyway, he says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character of all fiction. Interesting how he describes uh, scripture. Fiction. Thank you. All right. Boom. Shot across the bow. So, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. And now he gets into some big words. You know why he's a doctor. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, capriciously malevolent bully. So if you, you really want to know, hey, Dr. Dawkins, what do you think about this God? Uh, you're hearing, uh, you're reading what he says about what he, when he reads he says he's given an honest reading of the Old Testament, and this is how he describes the God of the Old Testament. So basically, what's the main criticism there? If you go to slide three, it's, there's two main points. The first one is, 
if you read the Hebrew Scriptures, you see that the God described there is a God full of violence and genocide, means he says just wipe out a whole race of people, uh, prejudice, injustice, and he's, in, he's unjust to the rest of the world so that he can favor this one group of people, this chosen people that he calls his people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, over all the other peoples in the, in the, on the earth. And that's part of the Old Covenant. And then number two, another criticism of God is, let's jump from the Old Testament over to the Christians and say, the God of the Old Testament and the commands, the violent commands in the Jewish scriptures, they've been used and sort of uh, hijacked by the Christians or by some Christians in the Christian era so the Christians can justify more violence and oppression against their enemies. I'll give you just an example of that. There was a, a war in the 1600s in Europe called the Thirty Years' War. 1618 to 1648, ended in the Peace of Westphalia. But during that 30 years war, approximately 15 to 20 percent of Europeans died in that war. And you know what the cause of the war was? It was Catholics versus Protestants. It was Catholic followers of Christ who said that these evil Protestants have to be of the devil and they must be destroyed. And the Protestants said, these uh, Roman papists, they're the followers of uh, Antichrist, and we have to destroy them. And Christians were killing Christians in a, in a religious civil war. That's just one example. But they used this idea of the God that says, go ahead, and God gives you permission to destroy your enemies. Now, when you read some of the passages in the Old Testament, they are admittedly violent. In fact, they're disturbing to read. I want to read a passage to you right now. I don't want to dodge it. Um, some of these passages are admittedly harsh. And here's one of them. It comes out of the fifth book in the Old Testament or the Jewish Bible, the scriptures, uh, called the book of Deuteronomy, right? It means a second reading of the law. Uh, Deuteronomy was an account of when the children of Israel had finally reached the place on the east side of the Jordan River, and they're getting ready to go into the promised land to conquer the rest of the promised land. They took a pause, and Moses, who's now 120 years old, and he's been walking around the desert with these clowns for 40 years, and he finally, the old unbelievers died off, and he's getting ready to, uh, to die himself, but he says, I want to remind you what God wants you to do here. So Moses is talking to the children of Israel, and he says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations. By the way, interesting, Moses, the way he words it. Who's the one driving out the pagan nations? It says the Lord your God is going to drive out before you many nations. So this wasn't just the Israelites themselves. God was on their side. God was going to help them. What are the names of these pagan nations? The Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Ouch. You must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters over to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. In the uh, New Testament, by the way, the parallel scripture might be 2 Corinthians 6 where it says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. <laughs> this is sort of a harsh rendering of that in Deuteronomy. Uh, because if you let their daughters marry your sons, or if you let your daughters marry their sons, what is going to happen? Verse 4, they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. So there's another little zinger at the end of that passage where it says, hey, Israelites, if you think you're the chosen people and that God's favor is completely on you, and he's going to bless you so you can go out and wipe out these seven pagan nations so that you can occupy the promised land, just know that if you start acting up and start acting idolatrous like they did, guess what God is going to do to you, O oh, chosen people? So it's not so great to be God's chosen people. 
So here's God's command. It goes on. He says, this is what you're to do. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, burn their idols in the fire. All that pagan fertility religion that was full of debauchery and evil and child sacrifice and all kinds of sexually deviant behavior, including bestiality, all that terrible activity that the Canaanite religions were doing, get rid of it all, put it all in the fire. Why? Because you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Now you say, Jim, you put it in yellow for a reason. Why? Well, I mistyped. No, that's not the reason. I put it in yellow because I want you to see there what was God's perspective? What was God trying to do in that moment that he was driving out those pagan nations? He was choosing Israel to be his chosen people, and Israel was going to represent God to the rest of the world. Now, if you want to go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 4, you can say, hey, God didn't chose you because you were so great. God didn't chose you because you were righteous or you were stronger than any other nations. God chose you because he kept his promise that he made your patriarch forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's favoring you because of them. And so now God's made a covenant with the children of Israel. God promised them the land that he swore to give to Abraham's descendants. And God was creating his community of people to show the rest of the world who he was. He was going to do that through the children of Israel. And he had to set all this up. And unfortunately, unfortunately, Israel, besides going in and occupying the promised land, Israel was also going to be God's instrument of judgment against these pagan nations. Now, what was so bad about these pagan nations that were going to be driven out? Let's go to the next verse, because God is now, in, from where we just read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, back up 400 years, and now there's this old man, Abraham, and he's walking around in Genesis 15, and he says, God, you say you want to change my name from Abram to Abraham. Abraham means father of many nations. God, just to remind you, I have zero children right now. So how is this going to happen? You know, how are you going to fulfill your word? And God says, Abraham, look up in the sky. And it was at night and he sees all the stars. And it must not have been Los Angeles because you can't see a star in Los Angeles. Between the inversion layer, between the smog and between all the bright lights of the city, you can't see anything. But you go out in the desert and all of a sudden, hey, look at that. There's a bunch of stars up there. <laughs> and, and Abraham would be looking out in Israel, ancient, without any of those lights. And he would see myriad of stars and, and galaxies up there. And, and Abram, and God says to Abram, you see all those stars up there? That's how many your descendants are going to be. And it says, Abraham believed God. Genesis 15, 6. It's a great passage. It's requoted in the New Testament many times. Abraham got, saw that promise from God. He said he believed God. And, he, and that belief, that faith that, that God had in Abraham, and that Abraham had in God, that God was going to keep his promise, that faith was what justified God. Abraham was justified. His faith was credited to him as righteousness, right? And so God goes on in the same chapter, and he says, the Lord said to Abraham, I've got another promise to make to you. I'm going to make your descendants as, as numerous as the stars, but I'm also going to bring them out of a 400-year captivity that your descendants are going to go to a foreign country and experience. So Abraham's in Israel, and God says this to him. You can be sure, Abram, that your descendants, they're going to be strangers in a foreign land. Do you remember what the foreign land was? Just so you're listening. Uh, not Mexico, not Canada. No, no, that's us. That's the United States. He's in Israel. Go south and west. You get to the nation of Egypt. Remember, Joseph went down to Egypt, and he became second only to Pharaoh, and he brought his whole family down there because they were having a famine all over the world. And that's how, that's how Israel's descendants got there to Egypt, and they multiplied and multiplied. And 400 years later, they're like a million and a half people, and they're slaves, and they're being oppressed by Pharaoh. So all that is coming true. They will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. 
but I will punish the nation that enslaves them. Egypt, you're going to get 10 plagues. You don't even know it's coming. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, and you got to pay the price. And in the end, they will come away with great wealth. Remember when Israel left and they put their hands out? They say, hey, Egypt, Egyptians, you got something for us? And they were given all kinds of gold and jewelry and precious clothes and silks and stuff. Um, they came out wealthy from the nation of Israel. It was, like, it was basically like in one night, Israel got paid back everything that was stolen from them and enslaved to them by the Egyptians. So now 40 years from that event, that exodus out of Egypt, now Israel's getting ready to go into the promised land. And it says, after four generations, your descendants will return here to this land. So here we are, Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses is getting ready to die, and Israel is being told by Moses, that promise that our God made to our ancestor Abraham 400 years ago, it's coming true, and you're living proof. You're standing right here on the promised land, and we're getting ready to cross over the Jordan River into the rest of the promised land, and God wants to use you as his instrument to be a light to the nations, but in order to do that, you're going to have to drive out those evil, practicing, Canaanite, reproachful, debauched, fertility religious people that are going to have to be removed from the land. And because look what it says. It says, after four generations, your descendants will return here. For the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. They were evil people in Abraham's day. Look at Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of that. God destroyed that city, but they weren't as evil as they were going to become. And God says, their evil hasn't re yet reached its full measure. And when it does, guess what? Israelites, you're going to be my instrument of judgment against those people. Now, let me show you what I mean by that. Because there was a, uh, there was a, a doctor at Talbot, Theological Seminary, a teacher at Biola University. He also teaches at Houston Baptist University. He's a brilliant guy. Uh, Luke would probably, you know, put him right up there with all his philosophical heroes. And his name is Dr. William Lane Craig. And William Lane Craig did a video. I'm just going to show you a, a portion of this video where he answers this question about the Canaanites. And wasn't God being an evil, vengeful God by destroying these Canaanites? I want you to see the video. So please turn your attention to the screen. Now, I have not in any way ever said that God ha has commanded or could command genocide. That's an unsympathetic misrepresentation of what I said. What I was dealing with are these narratives in the Hebrew Bible concerning God's commands to Israel to go into the land of Canaan or the modern day land of Palestine and to drive out the Canaanite clans or tribes that were inhabiting the land. And in the Hebrew Bible, God commands Israelites to go in there and to slaughter uh, any of the Canaanites that uh, oppose them, whether man, woman, or child, they are to be exterminated. Now, anybody who takes the Bible to be historical has got to wrestle with these difficult texts. The, the question is, how could a God who is all loving, all good, and all holy issue such commands? Um, and why would he do so? How, is there some kind of internal cons inconsistency here? And what I argued was that when you look into these in the context of the narrative, you find that God held his people Israel in Egypt for 400 years before bringing them into the land of Canaan because he said the iniquity of the Canaanites is not yet complete. These people were not yet so debauched, so reprobate, that God would judge them. And so he held his people in abeyance until the iniquity of these Canaanite tribes was so pronounced, so they were so vile and so evil, that God finally used Israel as his means of bringing judgment upon these tribes in the same way that God would later use pagan nations like Babylon and Assyria to judge his own people, Israel, by allowing them to come in and sweep through the land and conquer the people. 
So that this represented God's judgment upon the, these uh, Canaanite tribes. And when you read the ancient non-biblical literature about these tribes, this was a culture that was incredibly evil. Clay Jones has written a, an article on this in Philosophia Christi in which he looks at some of these ancient texts. And the sort of the, the bestiality and uh, human sacrifice and the mockery of, of God that characterized this culture was really, really vile. And, and it, it raises the hair on your neck to read these texts of what these people were like. And it, this story of the conquest of Canaan only comes after the story of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And you may remember in that story, Abraham argues with God and says, God, if there are 50 righteous people in these cities, will you, will you destroy them? Will you destroy the good along with the unjust? And God says, no, for the sake of the 50, I will not destroy them. And then like a Middle Eastern merchant, uh, Abraham bargains with God. Well, God, if there are 40 in the city, will you destroy it? God says, no, for the sake of the 40 righteous people, I will not destroy it. And God says, uh, Abraham says, oh God, don't be impatient with me, but if there are 10 righteous men in the city, will you destroy it? And God says, no, for the sake of the 10, I will not destroy it. And Abraham doesn't dare to argue any further with God. But the purpose of this story, which comes in the narrative prior to the conquest of Canaan, I think, is to emphasize that God is not going to judge these people until they are utterly, utterly deserving of judgment uh, because they are so debauched. So um, the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is, is illustrative of why God held his people for 400 years before bringing them into the land. And when he brought them into the land to judge Canaan, what was that judgment? It was not to commit genocide. That is an utter misrepresentation. There was no racial war here. There was no command to pursue and hunt down the Canaanites and exterminate them all. What was the command? The command was to drive them out of the land. The land is what is, was and remains so all important to these Middle Eastern people. Who has the land? And what God was doing was destroying these Canaanite uh, petty kingdoms as nation states. He was destroying these nation states, in effect, by dispossessing of the, them of their land and bringing in the Israelites and giving the land over to Israel as the land of Israel, the promised land. And if these Canaanite tribes had simply fled before the advancing armies of Israel, no one would have been killed. There was no command to hunt down the Canaanites, no intention to kill them all off and eliminate them. It was only those who stayed behind to fight that would be killed. Uh, and in fact, there is nothing in the narrative to suggest that any women or children were killed. There is no narrative whatsoever that says that anybody other than combatants were killed in this cleansing of the land. And we really don't know how many actually were killed. This was apparently a gradual sort of dispossessing of the land that these tribes occupied. So the question is then, well, how could a god who is all holy and just and loving, command such a thing. And I think you can make sense of this through a divine command morality, which says that our moral duties are constituted by God's commands. So that when he issues commands to us, these become our moral duties. So Israel and the armies of Israel became in effect the instrument by which God judged these Canaanite peoples. I just want to give a quick summary of uh, Dr. William, Craig, William Lane Craig's points. Okay, first of all, he says God held his people in Egypt for 400 years, right? He was doing so until those Canaanite tribes' debauchery reached its evil limit. Then, number two, Israel became God's means of bringing judgment on these pagan Canaanite nations. Number three, God's judgment on Canaanites was mainly to, quote, drive them out of the land so Israel could occupy it. Drive out the influence of the Canaanites, too. Not just the, the people themselves, but their, 
their ancient, sick, debauched fertility religions that involved people and animals and all kinds of terrible things, child sacrifice, uh, awful things that God said was detestable. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 9, God says that, he says, I'm driving out these nations, quote, because of their wickedness. It was because of their wickedness. They, and uh, the Canaanites would have the possibility of fleeing the land if they saw the Israelite army was coming. They could choose to get up and leave or they could stand and fight. And the ones that stood and fight, they would be the ones that die. So God's judgment on the Canaanites was mainly to drive them out of the land so Israel could occupy it. They wanted to remove all the objects of the pagan religion. And by the way, I want to say too, this command of God to the Israelites to come in and occupy the land and drive out the Canaanites, this was a one-time command. I mean, there, you don't read this over and over where the Israelites, every generation, uh, God, I'm gonna, God says, I'm going to send you to war and there's another pagan tribe over here, over here, over here. And Israelites, I want you to be my blunt instrument of judgment to wipe them out in every generation. No, it was a one-time command so Israel could come and occupy the promised land and from there, ideally, start to become a light to the nations of the world to show them who God really was. Now, the other point that, I, that William Lane Craig made was it wasn't just Israel being used as God's instrument of judgment on pagan nations. I, I don't know if you remember Habakkuk, but in the book, in one of the books of the Hebrew Bible, the Habakkuk, uh, Habakkuk's walking around, and it was right before Judah was attacked by Babylon going into exile. And so Habakkuk's, you know, walking along the porch of his roof or whatever, and he's saying, God, I just don't get it. I live in such a pagan land. I, these people are idolatrous. They're not obeying you at all. They're not keeping your commands. I live among a terrible, wicked people. God, when are you going to do something about it? And God says, I am going to do something about it. And Habakkuk says, good, what are you going to do? He says, I'm sending the Babylonians to run over and take you over your land and send Israel into exile. And Habakkuk says, what? You can't do that. And God says, you're, I'm God. You're telling me what I can do. And Habakkuk says, but wait, they're more wicked. The Babylonians, they're more wicked than we are. They're pagan. They don't even believe in you. And you're going to make them overrun us? And God basically says, look, I can make an instrument of judgment of whatever I need to do in order to accomplish my purposes, right? So Israel was often attacked by other nations and being disciplined and judged by God by letting these other nations attack them in order to discipline and bring them back to where he wanted them to be. All right, let's go back to, so that was the first question about the violence in the Old Testament. The second question had to do with this one, which is God's violent commands in the Jewish scriptures. They've, those violent commands, they've been used by Christians to justify more violence and oppression. Now, I mentioned the 30 years war in the 1600s where like one out of six Europeans of that generation, one out of six died in that war. Catholics versus Protestants, that was terrible. But you can also remember other dark times in Christian history as well. The Crusades, where the Pope says God wills it, that Christians would go and attack uh, and kill Muslims in order to, quote, reoccupy the Holy Land so that people could make their, Christians could make their pilgrimages to Jerusalem and other places. The Crusades were pretty a dark stain on our history. The Inquisition was no party. That was in ancient Spain, right about the time Columbus was discovering America. Uh, the Spanish uh, Catholic Jesuits were going on this Inquisition and they were bringing in people suspected of being Jewish or pagan and they're basically saying, look, do you confess Christ? Do you believe in him? Do you take on the tenets of the Catholic faith? Because if you do, we'll welcome you into the land. And if you don't, we're going to kill you or we're going to torture you until you do finally say yes to Jesus, which is a terrible terrible way of trying to convert somebody. The question comes around, yes, there were times, dark times in Christian history when, quote, Christians used those passages to justify their behavior. But the real question is, did Jesus ever say it was okay to do that? Did Jesus ever say it was okay to use violence to accomplish God's purposes, right? When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and the uh, the mob sent by the Jewish high council 
to come and arrest Jesus, led by Judas the betrayer, right? Carrying the torches into the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, Jesus is praying in there. Finally says, hey, everybody wake up. My captors are coming. And when they came to arrest Jesus, you remember, you know, was it time to fight? Was this the time to grab your swords and say it's time for the holy war to start? And this is the beginning of the revolution. And with Jesus, we're going to not only conquer the evil Jews who oppose him, we're going to conquer the Romans. We're going to reestablish the Davidic kingdom. And it starts right now. And Peter says, and I'll tell you what, I'll throw the first punch. And Peter slices his sword and he cuts off the servant's ear named Malchus. That was one of our Bible college questions anyway. Uh, the things you have to, to answer in Bible college. Okay, uh, as in John's gospel. But my point is, Peter takes up the sword, cuts off the servant's ear, and is probably looking to Jesus saying, is that good? And Jesus says, put away your sword. If you want to know what Jesus thinks about violence, he says, put away your sword. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. So here's the deal. A Christian is not allowed to attack a non-Christian to try and turn him into a Christian or to try to say, my God's better than your God right? We're not allowed to do that. Jesus certainly didn't practice it. He told Peter to put away the sword. Here's another instance where Jesus is talking in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says to his Jewish audience, he says, you know what? You've heard the law that says, love your neighbor, which they interpreted to be fellow Jews, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, right? And if you can hate your enemies, then obviously you can do bad things to them. But I say to you, Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And in that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. And I'm sure the Jews were saying, man, Jesus, that's easy to say. <laughs> oh, anybody can go say, hey, um, love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. And instead of hating your enemies, go ahead and love them and pray for them. Turn the other cheek. Jesus, that's, those, are, those are words they're really hard to live out. Did Jesus ever live out those words? I don't know. Let's, let's recap him going to the cross. And he gets to the place of the skull where the Roman guards who have been beating on him and scourging him and punching him and spitting in his face and putting a crown of thorns on his head saying, oh, you're the Messiah, huh? Well, hey, we bow down to you and mock in mock worship. They finally take him up to the cross and they're putting six inch Roman spikes into his hands and feet. And what does Jesus say? God, would you act on my behalf and wipe them all out? Which in a, in a natural human state, anybody would feel that way. But what did Jesus say instead? And the Greek says he said it over and over and over again, not just one time. It says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. We are not allowed to take violent passages from a covenant that God had with the Jewish people two, you know, 3,200 to 2,000 years ago and reinterpret and say, we're going to take a passage from there and we're going to throw it into the new covenant and we're going to start acting that way. We are not allowed to do that. That was a covenant that is... That is for those people at those time. We now have a much better covenant with Jesus. And Jesus says, you are not allowed to use violence. You are to pray for your enemies and to love them and to go the extra mile to try to reach them. And if, if you want to know how Jesus taught, he said, put away your sword. He said, love your enemies. And when they were crucifying him, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus set the example for us all. Now, John writes... In his gospel in chapter 3, what is God's attitude toward the world? Even though the world is lost in sin, even though the world was estranged and separated from God by sin, God did not allow that sin and his justice, his moral perfection that has to punish sin, he did not allow that to overtake him. He says, God so loved the world. Instead, he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in Jesus would not perish but have eternal life. So if you say, what's God's heart for the world? It's that everyone would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That no one would perish. God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It says in Peter's letter, 2 Peter. Right? 
Now, here's another. You say, if you didn't get John 3, 16, let me give you the next verse. It says, for God did not send his son into the world. When God sent Jesus, he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, right? Now, the only thing is, there's this thing that mankind has that is a terrible gift, but it is a real gift from God, and, it, and the gift is called free will. That means that you and I get to make choices. We get to choose what we're going to do with God. We get to choose what we're going to do with whether we have Christian faith or no Christian faith. We have the freedom to choose, but God says, you can choose however you want. Follow me or don't follow me. Accept and receive me or reject me and do your own thing. You have the freedom to do that, but you don't have the freedom to choose the consequences of that decision. God is the one who has the consequences of that decision. And look on the next verse, because it's still in John chapter 3. John given a summary, and he says, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. <gasps> Uh-oh. But not everybody's going to believe in the Son. Not everybody's going to repent and turn around and put their faith in Jesus. What's going to happen to them? But whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. So you say, wow, okay, God wants everybody to be saved through Christ, but the reality is not everybody's going to bow their knee to Jesus. So what's going to happen to those people who refuse to bow their knee to Jesus, who refuse to accept the offer of forgiveness and eternal life that God is offering graciously through Jesus? What is God going to do with the unbelievers or the, the, the people who won't trust in Christ? Well, let's jump to the end of the book. <laughs> well, first of all, you can go back to a story Jesus told himself in Matthew's gospel in chapter 25. And he says, talking about himself, Jesus always referred to himself as the son of man, this, this, the model of what a man is supposed to be like. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another. He'll separate the people out as a shepherd would separate the sheep from the goats. And just so you know, you want to be on the side of the sheep. <laughs> you don't want to be a goat because the sheep are the ones who are saved and the goats are the ones who are lost. And then Jesus says at the end of that story, he says, the ones who do not trust in him, who are not his followers, says, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous will go to eternal life. Now, you and I who trust in Jesus, we're on the sheep side. We get to be called the righteous because we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us through our faith in him. We get to experience eternal life. But not everybody's going to do that. And he says the ones who don't go away to eternal punishment. You jump down to what Paul says in his letter to the Thessalonians. And when Christ returned, there's a whole chapter in 2 Thessalonians 2 that talks about, well, what's going to happen when Jesus returns? And he says, well, right before Jesus returns, there's going to be this, this coming of this man of lawlessness that we call the Antichrist. And when Antichrist shows up, he's going to do some terrible things. But guess what? His days are, are short and his days are numbered. And he says the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he's taken away, until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one, that's the term for the Antichrist, will be revealed. But what's going to happen to him when he rebels against Christ and against his authority and against God? What will have whom the Lord Jesus Christ will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Jesus has great plans, has terrible plans for the Antichrist and the false prophet. You jump down to the end of the book to Revelation chapter 19 and John sees this vision that's amazing. He says, then I saw heaven open and a white horse was standing there. It's writer. Now he's talking about Jesus. It's writer was named Faithful and True for, the, for he judges fairly but, who, but this is this meek and mild Jesus that says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Put away your sword. Those who, who live by the sword will die by the sword. The same Jesus, when he comes again and the rebellion against God is complete and there's no more time to turn around and repent, and now the judgment of God is coming against sin and rebellion, it says 
he wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire. On his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood. And his title was the word of God. You know, you go back to Revelation 7 and it says, the saints, the, the ones who believed in Jesus, they had, their, they had their robes washed white. How? They had their robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, if you don't know the Christian faith, that just sounds sick. It's like, how do you get robes? How do you get a robe to become white by dipping it in a bunch of blood? But this imagery is if, that, if those people come into contact with Jesus and they put their trust in Jesus, then the righteousness of Christ is imputed to their behalf. And it's as if the robes that they were wearing, the righteousness of Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God comes upon them and they wash their robes white through Jesus, through the blood of the Lamb. Right? Go on in that passage. It keeps on going. And he says, the armies of heaven dressed in finest of pure white linen only because of Jesus. They followed him on white horses. From his mouth, this is the mouth of Jesus now, came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. This isn't nice, meek, mild Jesus anymore. This is Jesus who's coming to judge, who's coming to exercise God's judgment against a rebellious, unbelieving world who would not bow their knee to him. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. And on his robe and his thigh was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Just so you know, it's talking about Jesus. I was debating a Muslim one time, and I was saying to him, I said, you know, the, the God that you serve, whom you call Allah, the way I understand him is, yeah, he's the creator, and he's all-powerful, but he's also impersonal, and you can't really know him. And he's not really a God of love. He loves the righteous, but he doesn't love anybody who's not the righteous. My God loves everybody. He loves the world, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Your God, uh, you can never actually know this God, but you can, you can only serve him by obeying his commands. Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus is full of mercy and love and compassion. To the woman caught in adultery, he said, neither do I condemn you. I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Leave your life of sin. Jesus is that kind of God. He's demonstrating the love and the mercy and the compassion that God feels for all of us, the real God. And this Muslim looks at me and he says, you're only telling me part of Jesus. And I said, what do you mean? And he says, have you not read the end of your own book? And I said, what do you mean? And he says, well, you go to your book of Revelation and the Jesus that I read about there isn't the Jesus you're talking about right here. Now, the point that, I, the point that I'm bringing it up is to say that God is the same yesterday and today and forever. God is a holy, morally perfect, righteous God. He does want everybody to come to faith in his son Jesus because his son's death on the cross is the only means, the only way by which you and I can be forgiven. And if we all come in and take the offer of the water of eternal life that Jesus is offering, then we can all be saved and be in his family and there doesn't have to be any judgment. But if there's going to be unbelief, if there's going to be rebellion, if there's going to be people that says, you know what, I don't want anything to do with this Jesus or, or Christian faith or whatever. I'm doing my own thing and I'll let the chips fall. And if there's a God in the afterlife, I guess I'll just find out what happens. You know, people that have that attitude, Jesus who gave himself on the cross and sacrificed his own life, when he comes back, He's coming back to exercise the judgment of God against sinners and against unbelievers. So the God that you saw judging the Canaanite nations for their evil and their wickedness is going to be, in the New Testament, is going to be against all the unbelief in the world at some point when God says, that's it, human history is coming to a close and God's going to wrap it all up and Christ is going to return. That return, he's not coming in grace and, and in forgiveness, he's coming to deliver God's wrath against sin. And so God really is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But when you see God's heart, you're saying that God wants everybody to be in his family. 
there is, a, there is a time that we're living between the time of the Israelites going into Canaan, wiping out the Canaanites, being God's instrument of judgment against them. There's a time between there and the time of Christ's return. And the time we're living in now is called the age of grace. Grace means that you and I can get something that we didn't earn and we don't deserve. But you cannot receive that grace without repentance, without turning your life around, without saying, I've been going the wrong way. I haven't been following Christ. I haven't paid much attention to God. But you know what? I understand that now and I understand Jesus and who he is and I'm willing to turn it all around and I'm willing to believe in him. If you're ready to make that decision, you're living in the age of grace because right now, God isn't willing that any should perish. He doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to come into his family. That's why he sent Jesus in the first place. So if you're ready to turn your life around and you're ready to put your trust in Christ, then we need to just stop right now and pray. And I need to ask the worship team to come up and get ready because I want them to do a closing song as soon as we're done. I know time's getting short here. So I let's, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we understand that you are holy and you are just. And being holy and just, you don't just let sin go. You don't let rebellion go and not punish it and not have justice and not see wrong punished for being wrong. But Lord, thank you that despite that character that you so loved us, that you were willing to come and become the sacrifice for sin, that you stood in our place. You became the substitute payment of sin so that we could come in to a saving relationship with God by faith. So right now, Lord Jesus, we turn away from whatever life we were living. We were living. God, we, we come into your presence and we say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Please forgive me for all the wrong things that I've done. God, I want to come into your family. I want to be part of the redeemed. I want to be part of that family that's saved, that, that's part of the sheep, that when the sheep and the goats get separated, I want to be on the good side. I want to be on your side, the part that comes into your family and that enjoys eternal life with you forever. So, Lord, I'm putting my trust in you, Jesus, and I'm taking you at your promise that whoever believes in you would not perish but have eternal life. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for forgiveness, eternal life, and I pray that I'll follow you and show me what to do to follow you all the rest of my days that I still have here on this earth. I pray these things in faith and in hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, and I have some good news for you. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it, you're in God's family now, and we have some resources to help you grow in your faith. We rejoice with you. The Bible says that all heaven breaks out in a celebration when even one sinner comes to repentance. So you're in God's family. And whether you do it, did it here in this room or whether you did it watching us via live stream through the internet, then you're in God's family. So the whole point, let's keep growing in our faith. Let's remember that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we're living in the age of grace. And we need to bring as many into God's family as possible. Amen? Let's all stand as we close in a song.